0: Almighty God, you are our God of truth and God of promise. You are unchanging, and it is impossible for you to lie. Lord, we confess that through that though all these things are true of you, we are so quick to lose heart and hope in our waiting, our waiting for you to accomplish your promises. Lord, we are impatient, wavering, changing day to day in our thoughts and our affections. For they are filled with lies, which we are so quick to rest in and to trust. Lord, forgive us in our frequent turning away from the sure and confident hope that you provide in Christ. Grant us this morning faith and hope, in the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator, who has entered into the inner place behind the curtain in your very presence and intercedes on our behalf. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, turn our wavering and wandering hearts to rest in your sure and steadfast hope this morning. We ask that you'll do these things in the name of Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that he may receive glory, for he is worthy. Amen. Amen. Well, you've been very patient with me uh, the last month as we've been moving along in the book of Hebrews and specifically in this section concerning maturity. As we've mentioned before, we started this earlier in chapter 5, verse 11, was a portion of our text. If you notice in the Worship Journal page 3, the outline there, we started in chapter 5, verse 11 of Hebrews and we began looking at immaturity and maturity and and the very elements of that. Notice, if you will, in chapter 5, verses verses 9 and 10, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, verse 11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And... uh, pastor of this body of believers, the Hebrews, is going into a discourse concerning his concern for their immaturity. And he says their immaturity, the very essence of that is that they're not listening well. In fact, they're lazy or dull of hearing, according to verse 11. And then he challenges them in chapter 6, verse 1, that uh, they need to move on. They need to let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's encouraging them to be mature. Well, I must confess the last several weeks as we've been working through chapter 6, there's been a lot of challenges, I hope and I pray, that have been fruitful for us as a body of believers to examine our faith, to look at it again, and not to just assume, well, yes, of course I'm saved, I'm here but to reevaluate and to examine and to test our faith and to reassure ourselves with God's Word. It's helpful and even fruitful for us to examine our hearts and specifically our salvation. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed... You fail to meet the test. And so it's a good thing for us to examine our hearts, to look and to understand what it means for us to genuinely know Christ and to be in Christ and what it means to be saved and to be growing in maturity. We've got to confess that we live in a day and age of people that are filling churches, and yet we don't see a whole lot of maturity, do we? We don't see a lot of going on in the faith, continuing in the faith. And what this author says, this pastor says in the book of Hebrews, is that there may be lack of maturity because there's lack of salvation. Examine yourselves. Examine your heart. This pastor, however, doesn't want his congregation to run around in daily and constantly be wringing their hands wondering whether they're saved. Scripture also speaks to the fact that we are to be sure of our salvation, that God's called us to know that we are in the faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says... The gospel, the the writer John, the elder, is writing to his congregation in 1 John chapter 5. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so there's this balance of, of testing and examining our hearts. And yet the assurance that we're to have as a body of believers to move on and to grow. Because... It is dangerous for someone to just assume your salvation, isn't it? And then if there's any doubt in your mind for another person to come to you and say, Oh, no, no, don't doubt. No matter what, just, just, you, you, I mean, you're saved. You're okay. Everything's great. And never once taking them to scripture and saying, well, let's look again at what salvation is and what it means to be saved and what it means to be in Christ. Not to automatically rubber stamp everybody who's said this phrase, Jesus is Lord, or I trust in Jesus. To assume that they know what the word trust means, or the word Jesus means, or any of those other things. It's good to examine our hearts. And yet, we're also supposed to be confident of our salvation. It's a very difficult balance, and I think this pastor is trying to meet that need. He's trying to work between those things. And he's trying to encourage his congregation in chapter 6 toward maturity. And he's fearing the fact that they are quite possibly growing uh, less and less mature. But instead, they are becoming immature. So what we find is that in verse 9 of chapter 5, of chapter 6, it says, verse 9 of chapter 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, he's speaking to his congregation, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And he's speaking to this congregation here. And he tells them, as we looked at last week, that these things that he sees in their life that has assured him that they are walking in the faith is that they have a love for one another. They had a hope in salvation. In God's promises and in His kingdom, and they have a love—excuse me—a faith in Christ and the promises of Christ and this patient faith here. But then he turns in verse thirteen, and this is where we're going to be looking this morning, verses thirteen through twenty. And he says, and "Let's let's back up just a second. Look at verse twelve. So that you may be not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises." Verse thirteen. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no, greater, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God swore by himself to Abraham. You see this congregation uh, of, of believers here was a small congregation. Most think were around the area of Italy, and they were struggling and suffering. They were taking their hits for the faith, if you will. Um, they were staggering in their faith. They had been going, I mean, it's one thing to say, I've placed my faith in Christ. But isn't it quite another thing, and each one of us knows this, isn't it quite another thing day after day after day trying to stand in that faith? And their faith, like our faith, was beginning to wear thin. They were beginning to wear thin in their hope for God and in the faith that God had given to them. They were beginning to wonder whether they could, in fact, be sure that this was worth it. And you've asked that question. I've asked that question. Lord, I'm not only banking my life on this thing called Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but I'm placing my family in this boat. <laughs> I'm putting everything on this. Lord, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Can I be sure? And this pastor is wanting to encourage his congregation and say, and here's the answer this morning yes, you can be sure, you can be confident. You can rest all that needs to be rested upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ because he can take it and he is the one who can, who can receive that and we can be sure in that. But you and I, like these, these, uh, these, this congregation in the book of Hebrews, were beginning to totter. They were wondering, is this really worth it? I mean, they settled it before, but now they're back here again. Can we have hope? I mean, abiding, sure, confident, steadfast hope. I'm not one who uh, uses pictures or images a lot or at all. I don't know if any of you have ever heard me use a picture or image at all. But um, this morning, we, we obviously use this place and the kids use it during the week. And there's stuff everywhere. But this picture of faith was over here. And of course that wouldn't work because we have this PowerPoint over there. And I thought about taking it down and putting it in the other room. But when I took it down I looked at it and I went over here and I put it over there. Because whoever that kid was drew my faith. <laughs> that's that's what my faith looks like so often. They must have said, draw Shane's faith and that, that was it. Because that's how I feel sometimes. That's how I feel my hope. That's what my hope looks like so often. Friends, this morning, God's hope and his faith is a clear picture of faithfulness. It is steady and true. It's not a mess like so many of ours so often is. So how can we find this confidence, this surety? that when we rest our lives and the lives of our loved ones and the lives of everything that we have in this hope of the gospel, when we rest it all in there, how can we be confident? How can we be sure that this hope will stand, that it will hold? Well, I want us to notice this as the pastor is trying to encourage his congregation in this way. I want to encourage you in this way, and I want you to see this this morning. I want you to see it first in Abraham's patient example. Point number one, Abraham's patient example. This is verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15. Abraham's patient example. Point number two, I want you to see here, God's unchanging purpose. God's unchanging purpose. Verses 16 through 18. Abraham's patient example. God's unchanging purpose. And then thirdly, Our sure and steadfast anchor. Our sure and steadfast anchor. This is in verses 19 and 20. Abraham's patient example. God's unchanging purpose. Our sure and steadfast anchor. Note with me first uh, Abraham's patient example. Verses 13 through 15. Notice with me in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham's patient example. Well, notice this morning that what is happening here is this pastor is turning his congregation back to an example of Abraham. Abraham is frequented in this book, the book of Hebrews. And because these people were Hebrews and they knew their Old Testament, they would notoriously know the story of Abraham. We've done somewhat of a disservice in our chapter and verse numbering, however, because we're able to pull chapters and verses out of the Bible and quote them as if there's no context at all. During the time of the Hebrews, during the time of the New Testament, there wasn't chapter and verses. So when we see this quote in verse 14 specifically, First, the pastor says that um, God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then in verse 14, he quotes Genesis chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, verse 14 quotes that. And it says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Well, we have chapters and verses in our Bibles, and we can pull verses right out of the air and say, God, uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and you have no idea what's before and after that verse. You just think that's a great verse to use when you can't do something, right? In the Bible times, when they would quote a verse, it would be like us quoting a line in a movie today. We don't have chapters and verses in movies, do we? When you quote a line of a movie today you pretty much have an idea of the entire movie. What happened before that person said that quote? What happened after it? All of that takes place in your head when you th- hear that quote. It all comes back of what exactly is taking place in the way of the storyline. During the time of the Old Testament, and specifically during this time, during the New Testament, when they would quote a Bible verse, know that the hearers wouldn't just hear a verse and then try to tear it apart in verbs and nouns. They hear they, they are being referenced to a story, to an entire line of of a theme that goes through. And so when they heard this particular particular phrase, they're not thinking of just this one verse, and they can go find it in Genesis 22, verse 17. They were referencing an entire story. Well, they knew that Abraham came from a land that was in Ur. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be blessed and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They know that that was the the starting blocks of Abraham's faith. And as you go through from Genesis 12 through Genesis 22, you kind of thumb through that in your Bibles, if you will, maybe sometime this week, you'll find that God kept coming back to Abraham, and when he started, it was Abram, kept coming back to Abram and saying, now remember, you're going to receive this. Remember my promise. Don't forget my promise. And we know as we thumb through there that doesn't Abraham try to short-circuit that? And he goes to Hagar, Right? And he says, well, this isn't working. I don't have any children. And Sarah was getting older by the day. Can she have any children? Can you imagine laying out there in the tents in the middle of the desert uh, in the land that they were laying in, going to sleep another night, being disappointed once again, Sarah not being able to have a child, Abraham hearing this promise but having no idea how this can work. The emptiness and the sorrow, maybe, because he wanted to bank on God's promise, but nothing nothing he could see made it so that it, it could happen. Everything seemed to be contrary to what God was promising. He was discouraged. For twenty five years they struggled. And Sarah got pregnant. It was a blessing. It was it was a miracle. She was near a hundred that's amazing. Miss Sarah, you can share that with your friend. I don't know if we should pray that for her or not, but she was near 100. She had a child, Isaac. Can you imagine how careful she was with this baby? I mean, everybody's very careful with the first one. I mean, the second one you can drop on the head. But the first one, you don't want anything to happen to them, right? The, the first one, you are, you are ultimately careful with. The second one, you'll pick up the pacifier and wipe it off on your jeans and stick it back in their mouth, Right? That's how that works. She was very careful. But Abraham also knew that God was going to work through this child to give him, to bless him, to make him a nation, multiply him. And then the unthinkable came. It says in our passage that we read this morning in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, all of that I just described to you. God tested Abraham. I want you to sacrifice your son. Isaac was probably about 12 at this time. Precious young man, starting to look like his father probably, right? Starting to pick up those characteristics and qualities of their family. The prize of Abraham, the apple of his eye. This was probably the place where Abraham's faith was the thinnest, don't you think? His hope was at its limit. Lord, if you're not going to do it this way through Isaac, the one child that you gave us through a miracle, how in the world are you going to do it at all? I don't understand. And yet, Abraham's faith was amazing. It says he rose early in the morning. He went out, took his son and his other men, and they went, and they went up to the mountain. And Abraham and his son Isaac were there. They had the fire, they had the, the wood. Uh, Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. After he obeyed, if you notice in that that chapter, I'm not going to turn you back there, but in that chapter, he says, the angel says, now I know. You see, Abraham's faith could have very easily been in Isaac, not in God. Now I know the angel says that your your hope and your faith is in the Lord because you did not spare your son. You were not willing to spare, you were not you were you were willing to give your son. The angel comes back in Genesis 22:15 and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, "By myself I have sworn," declares the Lord. Look at her passage here in verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, he didn't just promise Abraham, just willy-nilly or just kind of happenstance. But when he made that promise, it says, since he had no one greater to by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God said in our passage, he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And then the quote takes place in verse fourteen. It says, saying, Surely I will bless you. And it's interesting because in the in the in the Hebrew text, in the Genesis twenty two, it says, I will bless you and I will multiply you. It's it's a doubling of the personal pronoun. The point is, is that and the point that the Hebrew author is picking up here is that God is banking this hope that Abraham is exampling upon himself. You know what God's saying? God's saying, this is as sure as my character. If this does not happen, my character is at stake. That's pretty amazing. God is saying that if this promise does not occur, then I can no longer be God. That's the surety that this pastor is trying to give his congregation. He's saying, when Abraham was promised something... He was promised that, and he was swore to it, by, God swore to it by himself. And he said, surely I will bless you, and I will multiply you. And then he moves on in verse 14, and he makes a comment about Abraham's faith here, the example of Abraham. Verse 15 says, and thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham, having patiently waited, Obtain the promise. There's nothing more difficult for you and I to do than to wait. <laughs> than to wait. Can you imagine waiting when your when your hope is wearing thin as well? And when nothing around you that you can look at seems to be going in the right direction? That's exactly where Abraham was. Abraham couldn't see any hope that this thing that God promised was going to come to fruition. And then when it did, where it was this little glimmer, God was saying, okay, let me cut that out from under you. Cut the legs out from under that as well. And at the end of the day, God says, look, you're going to constantly be trying to place your hope in all these other things, and I want you to place your hope in me. God says, this is, this is me. This is my character that's at stake. This pastor is telling his congregation this. He's saying, God has made a promise to us in Jesus Christ. And God has promised us this and He's made this promise to us and His character is at stake. This wandering, this difficult congregation who was trying to live their faith and being persecuted and taking hits as they were going along. Let me give you this just as an aside. One of the best definitions. This, this example here in verse uh, 15, Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That's what hope looks like. That's what it that's what it looks like. A person who is patiently waiting for God to give them what he has promised them. But what's on the inside making that man Abraham do this? What was driving him? Because this man wasn't seeing anything externally that would cause him to hope in God. Romans chapter four, verse twenty one. You don't have to turn there, but write it down and beside that reference write definition of hope. I I refer to this often when my hope wears thin. Romans chapter 4, verse 21. Let me read a few verses prior to that, and then I'm going to give you the definition. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Here's your definition for hope. Verse 21, for Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised definition of hope when you are fully convinced that God is able to do what He had promised. That's our hope, friends. Hope is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is not a positive look on life. It is not hoping for the best. Hope Is a confident resolve that God can do what He has promised. The Hebrews pastor here was telling his congregation to find their hope in Christ. And that there was no other place for them to try to find their hope. When they began following Christ, their lives became very difficult. You see, they, like us, were placing their hope in all kinds of other things. They were placing their hope in the things that they could see around them. And when God's promises were interjected into their life, they began saying, do I trust God's promises or do I trust the things that I'm seeing around me? My family is struggling. I've lost my job. Things are getting bad. I don't know what to do. I'm, not, I'm at my end. I don't know where I need to go. I, want to, I don't know whether following Christ is the best route. If I can just cheat a little or lie some or abandon my faith or turn away from God, then I think I can pull myself out of this. And the pastor here is saying to these believers who, again, their hope is wearing thin, look to the example of Abraham. He's been there. He's been there when, and this is interesting that that this pastor is quoting this portion of the text. He doesn't quote, in verse 14, the chapter 12 of Hebrews, or Genesis, right? He doesn't quote the portion of the promise at the beginning of, of Abraham's life. Because you and I all know that when we began the Christian faith, everything was great. We just had incredible hopes and ambitions and desires. It was great that God was doing amazing things. The difficulty is now, years later, you look back and you wonder... Is God going to be true to his promises? Can I still trust him? Because it's been a long time, and I'm not sure if I can continue to go on. You see, this pastor was quoting a Genesis 22, Abraham's lowest point, more than likely, in his faith and hope. And he says that in the midst of that, Abraham was confident that God can do anything that he says he can do. we too can begin to lose hope. In the day-to-day, our hope can begin to wear thin, and we may begin to wonder if God will do what he has said he will do. We're resting our lives and our families and everything we have on the promise of Christ. We can be confident in our hope because God's character is at stake. So our hope is grounded like Abraham's, not in our feelings, not in our ambitions, not in our, um, what we see around us, but instead in the very character of God. Notice what it says in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having faith, uh, patiently waited, obtained the promise. <laughs> My encouragement to you, congregation, is this. Patiently Wait. Continue to wait. God will allow you to obtain the promise. You can't see it. It's so far off. It's nowhere to be seen. Continue. God will help you because you too can obtain the promise. Point number two. Point number one was Abraham's patient example. And this hope is grounded not in the person of Abraham. It's not grounded in um, Isaac. It's not grounded in the families that are there in that Hebrew congregation that has family members around them. Their hope is grounded in the character of God, who God is. That was point number one. Point number two, I want us to see God's unchanging purpose. God's unchanging purpose. Notice with me verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is is final for confirmation. Well, this was typical during this day and age. They didn't have contracts that you can sign and have, but instead they would make agreements, oaths with one another. They would make vows with one another. And they would make agreements for selling and buying things, for having things and doing different things, and agreements on work and that kind of thing. And how would they substantiate that they, were, they agreed to do X, Y, and Z? Well, what they would do is they would make a vow in the midst of, those, of someone in authority over them. And the point is this, is that if that person who had authority over them, let's say a king or a one that was uh, in charge of them, if, that, if these two people made a vow or an oath, and this person was wanting to renege on that, the one with authority would come in and make that person do what he said he was going to do. No, no, you, you agreed to this. This is what we're going to make you do. And so you see it's very important that the vow needed to be made in front of somebody who had authority they couldn't make the vow in front of someone who had no authority because that person then would not be able to back up that vow if there was a dispute. Verse 16 says that very thing. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and they have to do that. It says, and in all their disputes, if there ever was a dispute, there in their disputes, an oath is final and it's confirmed by that person that they were making the vow in front of. Here's the problem with vows. We are liars. That's that's the problem with vows, isn't it? That's that's the problem with everything we're trying to sign off on and get done today, right? If people will do what they say they will do, things move straight, right? Move like they need to. If people don't do what they say they're going to do, that's when we have to get lawyers involved. And then it's a bigger mess, right? That's how that works. So we have somebody with authority who has this saying here. So we have these people that are there. Verse 17 verse 17 so when god desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose he guaranteed it with an oath now this is this is the amazing part of this verse it's not that god made an oath but that god desired to make an oath <laughs> you see the amazing thing here is it says in verse 17 when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now, if God chose not to show his people the unchangeable character of his purpose, would that change his purpose? No. Not at all. God has the freedom and will to do everything he wants to do, and most of the time he doesn't tell us, or ask, he never asks us. But most of the time we go along in life and we're like, what in the world's happening when the world. God has the freedom to do what he purposes to do, and he doesn't ask us. He doesn't tell us. But God in his mercy and grace, for our benefit, it says in verse 17, desired to show us more convincingly these heirs who are us, the heirs of the promise, those who are in the line with Abraham, the unchangeable character of his purpose, his plan. He desires to show this to his people. This plan is a definite plan. This plan is a sure plan. We see this uh, same word in Acts 2.23 when it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The definite plan of God. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, which doesn't change. So what he's saying here is this. God desired to convince us that his plan and purpose will not change. And so he guaranteed it, according to verse 17, with an oath. So we have a promise which God has given to his people in Christ. And now he's got an oath, which is a confirmation of that promise that God will do that. And he does that so that he can show us, convince us, and guarantee to us that this is what he desires to do. Look at verse 18. Now the reason he does this, it says in verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things, God's promise and his oath, these things can't change his promise can't change. He can't budge with that. His oath cannot change. He can't budge with that. Why? Because it is impossible for God to lie. And if He's made a promise and made an oath, He will not go back on it. He will not turn away from it. He will be sure and definitive in doing those things. Why? Because of these two unchangeable things. And God's not a liar. Now, this is what's amazing, and this may be what exactly what you need to hear this morning, friends. So listen to this. God went through all of this. He desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. That's a lot of jargon, isn't it? That's a lot of stuff that God's going into effort to do. He's done these two unchangeable things, and it is impossible for Him to lie. Why is He doing all of this? So that when we need a refuge we'll have a place to go that's sure and secure. It says here in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might, he's done this so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God doesn't do it for his benefit. He's sure he's going to do it. You know what's amazing? God does it for our benefit. He makes the promise and He declares it. He makes an oath that confirms that promise. And He does those two unchangeable things of which it's impossible for Him to lie. And He does it so that when we have to flee to a refuge, that we might find there encouragement. That word for encouragement is comfort. Strong comfort or encouragement. And hold fast or cling to this hope set before us. You see, this world is constantly convincing you to hope in it. Do you know anybody that's got all their life kind of wrapped up in whether this economy is going to pull out or not? Right? Where are we placing our hope? How many of us have our, our whole or know people that have our whole mind and thoughts and passions and thinking and words, if you bump into that guy, he's going to tell you about how awful things are politically or how they need to get better, and this is the person you need to vote for, and this is going to make everything, and we need to do this and this, and, and get you all frantically, and frantic, and, go, and you're like, oh, I, this, this is horrible. Everything's, everything's going to melt down in two weeks, it seems, when you talk to these guys. The world tries to office, offer us better security in our vocations. Do we really have security in our vocations, in our jobs? I mean, we don't. Mothers, you are about the only ones that have security in your jobs. No one else wants your position, and you do it so well, ladies, mothers. You are able to do that, but uh, uh, those of us who have jobs that they pay us, we we, we can't we can't pretend like we have security because we don't. The world tries to give us that hope. The world tries to help us see that or tell us that the world has more pleasures, more comforts, more entertainment that we can rest our lives in. If I just look at that or go there or do this, then I'll be happier. The world tries to convince us that we can place all of our hope in our health or in our families or in our stuff doesn't it? If you don't believe me, look at a commercial. You'll be, you'll have a better life if you just buy that truck. I've had a truck. You don't get a better life with a truck. You get payments with a truck. When all those promises come at us, you know what we need? We need a refuge. But you know what we need more than that? We need a refuge that is secure and comforting and that can stand fast with the onslaught of the world trying to show us that our hopes can be in everything else. I can guarantee that your hope has been in something else this week. You know why? Because it has for me. And you know how I can tell when my hope is setting something in this world? When I'm frustrated, discouraged. When I see that this was supposed to happen and it didn't. And now I, just, I don't want to do anything. I just want to go somewhere and forget it all. You see, your hope was in that. You see how quick we are? It's not an issue of whether you're placing your hope in... You're, I'm placing my hope in nothing or I'm placing my hope in God. That's not the issue. You're placing your hope in something. If you didn't, you wouldn't have gotten out of bed this morning. By the very mere fact that you got out of bed this morning, you're hoping in something. Is it your family? Your stuff? Your things? Your job? Your health? The only one that can shoulder our hope is God. And when we see that all those other things abandon us, when we become frustrated and discouraged and dread and doubt start setting in, this passage was why this pastor was telling this congregation, he says, when all that happens, friends... God has provided for you a place to flee that's a refuge, that is a strong encouragement, and it will hold you fast during those tumultuous times. It will hold you fast. And this hope, according to verse 18 at the end, this hope is a hope that's set before you. You have all these other hopes, and God says, I'm going to set this one before you, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and that hope, friends, will hold. Point number three, our sure and steadfast anchor. In the amazing verses 13 through 15, he talks about Abraham and the example that Abraham was. In verses 16 through 18, he talks about God and God's sure and steady and confident hope that God is confirmed by his very character, by, uh, by very oath and promise to unchangeable things. And then in verses 19 and 20, this pastor drives it to them. He says, all right, because when we look to the patient example of Abraham... And then we begin resting our lives upon the unchanging promises of God. When we do that, verse nineteen, we will find that we have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. That, that's a that's an amazing verse to me. That phrase, "We have this hope of God in His promises," we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. Of the soul. Now, for some of you, that doesn't matter. I realize that. But some of you know, don't you, how necessary and how comforting an anchor would be in your storm tossed, thrown around, beaten, and battered lives that you live day in and day out. you know how necessary an anchor would be for your souls that, that cannot rest but is constantly beat, beaten up. When your soul has been beaten and battered by the waves and tempest of not just that faith that you had a long time ago and it was all good, but, friends, this beaten and battered is it's one thing to be in a storm. It's another thing to be in a storm day after day. After day, after day. What is your hope doing? It's wearing thin. And what this pastor is saying and what God is saying to us, friends, is that we have an anchor. We have a, according to this passage, sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Sometimes all you can say is that you're still in the boat. (laughs) That's all you can say. I'm still in the boat. that's, That's all I can give. You're beaten and overwhelmed by the circumstances that you see all around you. But beloved brothers and sisters, you can have confidence of this one thing. That anchor, Jesus Christ, will hold. It will hold. Don't run off. Don't don't jump ship to that other ship that looks more promising. Stay anchored. To that sure and steadfast hope. And that is in Jesus Christ. We had an old hymn writer by the name of Moat. I think that's how you say his name. In 1836, who wrote this hymn. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You see, the saints have had the same issue throughout the centuries. Our souls have needed an anchor. And notice where this anchor is fixed. According to this, this hymn, and honestly, I've, I've sang this hymn several times, and I didn't understand why it said, The anchor holds within the veil. What is that? Because of this very passage. He's referencing this passage. Because it says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, verse 19, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's one thing to have an anchor, it's another thing to have it fixed on something. (laughs) This anchor of the soul is fixed in the heavens. It is fixed in the heavens. Now, where is it fixed in the heavens? a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Here's the problem with many of us pertaining to our hope. And that is this. Our hope... Is that no matter what happens, and no matter what you see, and no matter where you go, and no matter how many bad things happen to you, no matter how many tragedies take place in our lives, God says, This, my promise is, is that I'll bring you home. You'll be with me. And, you, and God says, I'm going to do that through this promise of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here's the problem, folks we don't want God, we want to hope in the things of this world. When I read things like this, this anchor is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He goes into the very presence of God and we say, well, what if I don't really want to be with God? You see, I believe so often the reason our hope is so all over the place is because we're not sure where to fix it. I want to encourage you today. This passage tells us that Jesus was a forerunner on our behalf. You see, Abraham was an example. Jesus is not an example. WWJD, what would Jesus do, is not the gospel. Abraham exampled for us what faith would look like. Jesus died on a cross and took upon himself the wrath of God on my behalf so that when I stand before God, I will be righteous and forgiven. Abraham didn't do that. And you can't follow that example. What God is speaking of here is this. Is that our hope is fixed in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. in one who bore our sins. Abraham didn't do that. Christ did. Where's our hope fixed? Our hope is fixed in the heavens. Where Jesus Christ went into the, the very holy of holies, which is the tabernacle was a representative a represent, to represent the very Holy of Holies that was in heaven. And Jesus Christ didn't go as a high priest into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, but He rose from the dead and went into the very holy place of God and the very presence of God, according to this passage, as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, He's gone ahead of us and He's going to bring us with Him those who have trust in Him. Can your... Can your prayer be? Can your heart be? Can your hope be this? Nevertheless, I am continually with you, Lord. You hold my right hand. This is Psalm 73. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Listen to this. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing, 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 nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may and will fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is good to be in the presence of God. That's our hope, friends. If your desire, if your want, if your longings are for the things of this world, your hope is going to be all over the place. But when God regenerates us through the gospel, he gives us a desire to be with him, to be satisfied in him, to be with our God. And the sure, confident hope that this pastor was given this congregation, and the hope I want to give you this morning, is that you have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters through the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That last phrase is pregnant with all kinds of different things, meanings and nuances and understandings. Chapter 7 through 11 is unpacking that phrase. And so I will not get into that this morning. I'll leave that for a couple of sermons after this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses, like Abraham and so many others, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on our behalf.